I could not disagree with you more. And so let me tell you why. I think that businesses, companies, they do not exist to create a profit. Businesses exist to create value for customers. And they coincidentally happen to make a profit because of it. I'm Scott McGrew. Welcome to Sand Hill Road. <sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center. Thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress-them-on-the-third-date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. I want to start with pizza because Grubhub started with pizza. Let us discuss the best pizza. You're in Chicago. I'm from Chicago. Chicago-style pizza like they have on at Pequod's on the north side is, in my estimation, one of the best pizzas in the world. Well, you are in conversation with a person who is an expert on all things pizza because I've had literally thousands. Grubhub co-founder, Mike Evans. Even though I'm from Chicago, I'm a Chicagoan. I actually think New York style pizza typically is better than like the big- And that you can fold and eat on the run. Cheese pizza. Yeah, I I like that. They're, the best the best place in the, in the country is called uh, JB Alberto's. It's like a mile from my house. In Rogers Park, Chicago. This week, the lessons learned creating, growing, and funding Grubhub. Grubhub was doing delivery years before DoorDash, years before iPhone, and it kind of all started with a pizza. So you may remember in 1998, there was a movie called The Net, uh, written by, and, and Sandra Bullock was in it. And in, she actually uses a website to place an order. So that didn't exist until I made it. Right? Like, it was on a movie. <laughs> I actually found that scene. It's it's right at the top of the movie. There's not much usable sound, but there is a really weird version of a brighter shade of pale in the opening credits. I'm like, okay, it's time for this thing to exist. And so I went from having, a, I had built a delivery guide to find information about the restaurants delivered to you, see their menus, and then I switched to doing online ordering pretty quickly after that. It's interesting you starting with menus um, because, yeah, to remind the listener, I mean, we're talking long before iPhone. I mean, this is not where you ordered something by clicking a couple of check marks on your iPhone. You started with menus and menus have kind of come full circle because of the QR code. Yeah. You know, it's funny, like we're in web three or four. I don't even know web, some, web something point oh, probably 3.0 at this point. But web 1.0 is taking offline businesses and bringing them online. That was like the first wave of companies that we started. And then web 2.0, a big part of it was user generated content. And so mm-hmm. the 
there is this world now where people just upload menus and you can just see all the menus for your restaurant because it's just sourced from the people going to the restaurants. But that didn't exist at the time. You literally couldn't find those menus anywhere. So I, I walked around all the, the first two cities anyway. I walked the entire city picking up all the menus. Uh, Paul Graham, uh, you know, he famously said, do things that don't scale. Well, that's a great example of something that doesn't <laughs> scale. It was really hard. But it gave us, it gave me a leg up. We had, we had a way to attract people to the website before we even signed up all the restaurants for online ordering. So this starts as a hobby at first, but it must have been weird to hire that first employee who then becomes part of the team. I mean, for a while, you're, you and your co-founder are Grubhub, and then at some point, there's a third person, right? Yeah, so I started the business in 2002, and then I went full-time. It was a hobby, and then I went full-time in 2004, uh, and we had no investment. And so we, the first employee that I hired was a salesperson in, in like a year later. Uh, and actually, Matt didn't join full-time until a year and a half after that. Uh, and so it was just me for a little while. But that you know, there's a couple of big transitions that happen in a business. The first is going from zero dollars to more than zero dollars. That that's the that marks the difference between a hobby and a business, right? And then there's when you get the first customer who pays you again for the second for this uh, a second time for a product they already liked, right? And this is the restaurants in this case, not the not the customers. Uh, and then another one is when you hire your first employee. Interestingly, another one is when you find out there's an employee that your company hired that you didn't like. You don't even know them. That's also Yo, that's weird. Good, yeah, like that's a really weird moment. Where you're like, hey, I'm I'm Mike. <laughs> Do you work for me? And, and they say, "What do you do around here?" And you say, "Well, I'm I'm the I'm the co-founder." I'm, yeah, yeah, that's right. Uh, usually, that that conversation happens in an elevator, and you're like, <laughs> "Okay, this has gotten big." Is there a temptation when you only have a few employees, and it's something that you created, to look over your shoulder, uh, over their shoulders, and say, "No, no, 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 not like that." Because after all, if you hired well, that person should be able to do their job without much supervision, and ideally, bring new ideas to the table. Yeah, not only is it hard, it's especially hard if you've never managed anyone before and you're 27 years old and you started this delivery guide. And now suddenly you have a business and you're employing people. Uh, you have to learn. You know, one of the things I learned is that my job, and I didn't know this at the time, but it took 20 years and 4,000 employees before I learned my job is to set the strategy. Like this is where we're headed, get the right person and make sure that they have what they need to be able to do their job and then get the heck out of the way, just get out of the way. And so I had to work through a few years of micromanaging before I realized that it's just not fruitful for anyone. And, and you really need to just trust people. So at, at some point you decide uh, to get funding. What did you know about venture capital at the time? Uh, the first investor that I put a balance sheet in front of looked at it and said, the sheet, this doesn't balance. And I was like, does it have to? And he's like, it's called a balance sheet. So I knew less than nothing about venture funding when I started. Uh, and so um, it was really challenging. I had I had no idea. I didn't know what the terms were. I didn't know how you went and go find I mean, I ran the business for four years without investment. So um, it, it was like, oh yeah, maybe this would go faster if I had some cash to actually hire people instead of having to like scrape for every dollar from customers. Um, and so it was challenging and, and I ended up learning about that through a variety of sources. There's, you know, there was a couple of websites early on, uh, AVC like was one, it was like a, it was like a blog. Um, and there was a few others. Um, and then I ended up getting a mentor, Chuck Templeton, who, uh, who had founded open table, uh, ended up becoming my mentor. And he taught me a lot about how the venture world works. Um, we also, 
my partner enrolled in the University of Chicago and I went to some classes down there and they had some, they had some like a, a startup competition where I learned some stuff about venture capital there too. But honestly, it wasn't until I had been through it for a number of years before I really started to get a handle on how that worked. Tell me about those first meetings. Uh, what were those like? And and you've said that, you know, it, timing is very important when it comes to seeking venture capital. Yeah, the first meetings were, um, you know, getting that first venture capital check is is 10 times harder than the second one. Like mm-hmm. with, once you, when you're an unproven entity, it's so hard to convince somebody to invest in your business. And, uh, you know, I had a mentor who had done it before. I had you know, the University of Chicago business plan competition helped. Um, but some of the, 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 com- the, org- the organization that ended up putting a, the first check into the business, we had been talking to them for 13 months before we actually closed the deal. I mean, it took a long time. And we had talked to hundreds of VCs before we finally got good at it uh, to the point where we actually closed that first deal. And that first deal was for millions, right? It was for $1 million. It was very small. So here's this relatively young man who has this idea, and he's got a company, and it's reasonably successful, and and it's a check for a million dollars. It's not, you know, it's not a lottery winning. You can't go buy a boat with it. I mean, you could, but you'd end up in jail. Um, But nonetheless, you know, there's a million dollars in that bank account. It's a it's a big moment when you're literally taking home food. I was taking home food from restaurants because like <laughs> I was paying myself so little that I could, you know, I didn't want to eat ramen. And so the restaurants were giving me free food going from that to, Oh, like I can make payroll, like no problem. This is going to be, mm-hmm. be easy. And it was great. We went from, uh, we went from basically once one, we tried launching San Francisco wasn't going great. We went from one city to four on that first million dollars. And then we went to got to 13 cities on the, on the next check, which was another 2 million. And, uh, and that's atypical. Like usually companies take a lot more money than $3 million to get to 14 cities. Um, yes. so we, we did it. It sounds like a lot of money, but in startup world that was doing it on the cheap. Now there's, there's gotta be some sort of critical mass as you come into a new city, right? Because if my, if I go to this app that I've heard is okay, well, they're finally in San Francisco. Let's check this app out. And you've got two restaurants. That's pointless. Uh, yeah, what the is the, mass, kind of the magic? What's that? It's funny you say that because we had an internal number that we used. You had to have eighteen percent of the restaurants signed up in a in an area. Uh, to to that was our definition of critical mass. And then the first page that a customer came to see to see needed to have five different cuisines. So it couldn't all be pizza. Yeah. Had to be right, like pizza, right. Chinese, sushi, Italian. Like you had to have a bunch of variety. And so um, those those two things were the predictors for whether or not a city was going to do really well. Would you would you have ever guessed the existence of ghost kitchens? Yeah, I mean it was it came up fairly early in the business. Because, oh really? Yeah, because what happened is we had restaurants. We had a restaurant that like was a Greek restaurant, and they said, "Well, well, I'm not going to sell pizza as a Greek restaurant. I'm going to sell pizza. We can make pizza and Greek food in this kitchen. So why don't we just have two different brands?" And so it came up from the restaurants creating multiple brands to use their kitchen for multiple cuisines because it's a lot easier to just sell Greek food as a Greek restaurant and pizza as a pizza restaurant. And so uh, it came from the, the restaurants started it first. And then, and then that transition to, well, maybe, maybe Grubhub should have its own kitchen. Like maybe we should just sell some of our own food. 
Um, and I don't know how far down the company actually got in that path, but like that was a discussion from like two, like really early on, like 2006, 2007. It did surprise me when it came up. Um, but then after like thinking about it, I was like, yeah, I guess if they make great food. Yeah, I guess I, it, it, I hadn't realized it was as old as it was. Was it, was there any uh, confusion or resistance, you know, as you were managing the company? Well, wait a minute, but you aren't a pizza, a pizza restaurant. That, that pizza restaurant doesn't even exist. So who's to say, right? Like if a, if a restaurant makes pizza, aren't they a pizza restaurant? (laughs) It was a really, like, it was a confusing thing. We, what we decided was if it was confusing to customers, if it was confusing to the diners, we weren't going to do it. Uh, But it turned out to not be very confusing to diners. What they actually cared about more than anything was, is the food good? So if a Greek restaurant makes bad pizza, then like, it's a problem. (laughs) If, If a Greek restaurant makes great sushi, everyone's fine with it. So it really came down to the quality of the food is what really mattered. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana. Where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. So what don't I know about food delivery apps? Uh, I'm guessing that some of those restaurants that first appear on a screen have been promoted in some fashion, right? It's not all purely just based on what I'm searching for. Yeah, I don't know how they are done now, but at the sure. time that at the time I was at the company, uh, the restaurants that paid most got sorted to the top, but that wasn't entirely true. There is also a modifier for quality. So the best restaurant best restaurants would get bumped up sometimes beyond what they were paying. And and the restaurants that had trouble delivering like hot quality food consistently would sometimes be dropped down to a lower spot. Um, but we had to be careful about doing that, right? So and then the other thing that came into play was you just needed to make sure that there was a variety of cuisines. So you couldn't have five restaurants that were sushi mm-hmm. restaurants at the top, which were always the ones that were willing to pay the most because they made the most margin on their food. Sushi restaurants paid the most because they have the biggest profits. Yeah, that's right. Well, they had the highest prices. So their, yeah. their margins meant more in terms of a pure dollar basis. There, see, I learned something about uh, app-based food delivery right there. Yeah. Here's so, the other thing that nobody yeah. knew. Like 2009, the price of chicken wings went up like 400%. Like the demand for chicken wings went up so high that that chicken wings, which used to be the the solution for how you sell the parts of the chicken that aren't the chicken breast, became the most expensive part. 
And that was like, it was, you know, when wings stopped kind of exploded and everything like that, like chicken wings just became this huge thing in the 2010 to 2015 timeframe. And it's, it's remained that way. Well, they are delicious. They are great. <laughs> I'm, I'm a sucker for a good chicken wing. Mike has written about his experiences and lessons learned taking Grubhub from concept to IPO in a new book, Hangry. You've written, you worried that, that Wall Street's insatiable appetite for profit might turn the company I founded into a trap. This is me quoting you. Will Grubhub stay true to its roots? Businesses ultimately are businesses, right? I mean, let's say there's a clothing company. It makes outdoor, you know, clothing for outdoor sports. It's going to see itself as a company that that does something magical or big, but ultimately they make fuzzy jackets and they sell them for more than they manufacture them for. Um, is there a point in which the creativity ends and and you just got to be a business and, and face facts? That's what you are? I could not disagree with you more. And so let me tell you why. I think that businesses, companies, they do not exist to create a profit. Businesses exist to create value for customers. And they coincidentally happen to make a profit because of it. And as soon as a company loses sight of the fact that the reason they exist is to create value for customers and start optimizing towards the profit motive instead, they lose the urge to differentiate and they lose the, the necessary animus to, to innovate. And and their products get worse and then they their competition shows up and they get destroyed. Right. And the profit and so, goes away. Um, yeah. And so I, I actually think it's it's great. One of the great paradoxes of business that you're like, yes, you have to return a shareholder value. Yes, you need to make cash. Yes, you have to pay your employees. But if you lose sight of the fact that those things are all secondary to creating customer value, then you can't do that thing. You can't make the profit. And so um, so Patagonia does a great job of making wonderfully comfortable fuzzy jackets. And they just happen to make a profit. And they do a really, really good job of the first one, which means they do a really good job at the second one. Speaking of seconds, after riding a bicycle literally from one end of the United States to the other, Mike is back with another startup called Fixer. It's a an on-demand handy person service. And the big difference between us and TaskRabbit or Angie's List or Home Advisor or, or any of those companies is um, we employ the workers full-time with benefits. And, uh, and we train them from scratch. And the whole reason we do that, there's, there's really two reasons to do that. One is because I wanted to create there's no way to, to create a great experience for customers in the home unless you actually have a sufficient supply of workers to do it who work in a specific way to create a really great outcome. And none of those things are things you can guarantee if, you have, if you're employing contractors, especially since the supply is insufficient relative to the demand. Like there's just more people who want someone to come into their home and do the work than there are people to do it, which everyone has experienced. If like you've got a guy that you got to, it's never a girl, by the way, like you've mm-hmm. got a guy and you want him to come to your house. You have to wait two weeks and they, they you need to batch up eight hours of work and it's a pain in the neck. Right. And so it's trying to create a great experience for the customer. And so we said, well, if the supply is inefficient, insufficient, we should just train people. And if we're going to put investment into training people, then we, uh, we should try and make sure we can hold on to them and, and actually employ them for the long term if we're going to invest in people. And so that's what we've created, which creates an amazingly good experience for customers in the home. Um, and, and so it, it's very different from the marketplaces just because we employ the people. And we're very focused on, on handy person work. 
not, we don't do everything. We don't, we're not electricians. Right. We're not plumbers. We, we do a little bit of electrician work and a little bit of plumbing work. Um, but it's a broad base. And then we can, we can help you with just all the little things that happen around your home. The name of the company is fixer, by the way, fixer.com. Uh, especially this next generation that grew up entirely digital when they own their first home, if they ever do, uh, and the pipe is dripping, they're going to Google. They're not going to go to the yellow pages, which as far as I know, don't even exist anymore. They're going to Google and they're going to expect to be able to book a handy person online by filling out a form. And that's exactly where you're meeting them. Yeah, that's right. That's exactly what the expectation is. And, uh, you know, by having an employee base, we know exactly when everyone's available. So if you want somebody tomorrow at two, we can send somebody tomorrow at two and actually show up on time, right? So being able to book it right right there instead of just sort of fill out a form and send it and hope somebody gets back to you, right? Like it, it, it's really important that, that that experience goes well for the customer. And it makes sense because we no longer feel like we have to be generalists in everything. We don't have to even drive our own car or cook our own food. We could be just really good at being a lawyer or really good at being a graphic designer. And then we can hire those other services out. So there's more specialization and people can do what they're interested in. And there's no stigma associated with like, yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't fix my window when it breaks because in the same way that I don't like, you know, I don't, I don't have to cook every type of food that I can get for delivery. Right. And so the idea that um, people can use us as the tool to get their, their home fixed is what we're trying to create. And as you sought venture capital for, for fixer, what did you do differently or did you do it all the same as far as when you were a young kid doing it, going to venture capital for the first time? I tell you what, getting venture capital after you've had a company that IPO'd is easier than <laughs> when you're a 26-year-old kid with an idea. Uh, so so the best advice for 26-year-old kids out there is try to have an IPO under your belt. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, I was cheating the second time around, for sure. Uh, but I also picked a harder business, right? I picked yeah. a business that was... We have W-2 employees, we have operational complexity, we had to figure out how to train people and educate people. Uh, and so I decided to do a harder business because it would be harder to raise money for it, but I would have it, I'd be able to cheat when I when I did it. Uh, and it's worked out great. Mike Evans, founder at both Grubhub and Fixer, and the author of the new book, Hangry, a startup story. A reminder, we would love to get a review or a rating for our podcast on whatever service it is you use. It helps surface the episodes for others to hear. It's a few minutes' work, but it would mean a lot to all of us. Sandhill Road is produced by Sean Myers under the leadership of Sarah Bueno and Stephanie Adruni. For more interviews with Silicon Valley's most influential entrepreneurs, check me out on TV at Press Here. That's Sunday mornings on NBC Bay Area and everywhere in the world on iTunes and at PressHereTV.com.